and welcome to Let's Talk About Brand. I, of course, am your host, Christine Gritman. Today's discussion is all about branding and culture. They have this whole symbiotic relationship going on. You know, brands need to understand their cultural context, but brands also have the power to shape culture as well. So today's discussion with Dr. Marcus Collins is just, oh my goodness, we are talking about so many things from Beyonce to Jesus Christ to, you know, Patagonia. It's just, we go all over the place and all in on the psychology of branding, on the social adaptation of brands or adoption of brands, on subculture and their impact on the cultural conversation about branding. And of course, we get into what your brand needs to do if you want to fit into a certain cultural framework, and especially if you want to smash it and really forge your own path within the culture. Stay tuned for an incredible, incredible discussion. I'm still buzzing. I'm so excited about this conversation. And I'm excited for Dr. Collins's book, For the Culture, so that I can have this conversation and dive into these ideas whenever I want. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I am so excited to geek out with today's guest simply because marketing ultimately and branding, of course, is social psychology. It is behavioral psychology. And today's guest definitely comes at it all from that perspective quite actively because he's not only a marketer, he is also an academic. Today's guest, Dr. Marcus Collins. He is the head strategist at Wyden and Kennedy New York, and he is also a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. His book, For the Culture, examines a lot of what we're going to talk about today, which is culture's impact on marketing and vice versa, honestly. It all, you cannot really market or brand effectively without understanding the cultural picture that you are fitting into and how you would like to fit into it. Without any further ado, let's bring him on. Welcome, Dr. Marcus Collins. Hello there. I love that applause. That's amazing. You know, I like making people feel like superstars. We got the spotlights here. <laughs> and we're spotlighting amazing. your brilliance here today. So I would love to jump in. I always like starting by defining exactly what buzzword we're talking about, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear your take on what exactly we mean when we say culture. That's the perfect question to ask because you're right. Culture is one of those words that we often use, especially in our industry as marketers. We use it all the time without having great lexicon for it. We say, let's get our idea out in the culture or what's happening in culture or make sure our ideas are informed by culture, but we don't really have the best language to describe it. And that's problematic because if we don't have the good language to describe it, then it's really hard for us to operationalize it. So when I think about culture, I think about it through a Durkheimian lens. Emil Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology, talked about culture as a system, a system of norms, values, and symbols that demarcate who people are and what people like them ought to do. Essentially, the set of conventions 
and expectations that govern the behavior of people like us. And culture, by and large, is the governing operating system of humanity, of mankind. What we do, where we go, all these things are byproducts of what's acceptable and expected of people like us. So of course, for marketers, this is really powerful because our job is to influence behavior and there's no force more influential, no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. And that, of course, ties directly into things like the marketing concept of an ideal customer avatar. You hear that all the time. That really is just lumping people into a particular subculture. Before we started recording, we talked a little bit about your academic background and about how four key disciplines really come together here. There's marketing, of course. There's also sociology, anthropology, and psychology. And, you know, not everyone has studied all these things. Some people may think sociology and anthropology are almost interchangeable. I'd love to hear from you a little bit about what each of these separate disciplines really brings to the marketer. So sociology, anthropology, and I think psychology is going to be the most obvious one. But maybe let's start with anthropology, actually. Anthropology, sociology, psychology seems like a good order. You're the expert. (laughs) But I'd love to hear how each of those disciplines specifically brings context and really important insight to a marketer. Absolutely. So my field of study is called consumer culture theory, which is the convergence of those practices, those disciplines. It's an interdisciplinary field where we study how people consume, how people behave, and all the many ways we think about consumption through these different different fields of study. So anthropology is the study of humanity, anthro being humans, ology being the study of. So anthropology is focused on the study of humanity, how we make meaning and how norms are established and how symbols are ways by which we communicate with each other and understand the world around us. Psychology, to your point, is understanding how we cognate, how we process information mentally, which informs how we behave, how we do, why we do what we do. Sociology is the study of institutions, of groups of people how we behave collectively. All these things inform marketing because marketing is the act of going to market in an effort to get people to adopt behavior. And interestingly, if you look at the history of marketing, it becomes really clear how these things play a role, right? The marketing as a discipline came out of econ. It was the application of economic theory. So we use the theories of economics to understand consumer insights. And that was the case, you know, since the early times of 1900s, even, right? Or even before that. But then right around 1960s, 1950s, marketers said, you know what? They stroked their chin as marketers do. You know what? We can get people to consume more if we understand how they think, how they cognate. So marketers started to leverage psychology to better understand how people make decisions. And marketers said, this is great because people are not these rational animals that economics have told us about humanity. They are far more unpredictable, but we know predictability based on how they cognate. We can make better decisions to have a more consistent outcome. And then marketers said right around the 1980s said, yeah, that's great. Psychology helps us better understand consumers, but people act differently with different people. People act one way with a group of people and act another way with another group of people in different contexts. So marketers said, we could probably be thinking about sociology to better understand 
who people are and why they do what they do. And right in the 80s, marketers started leveraging sociology into our work. The 1990s, marketers said, if sociology is informing how we behave with certain groups of people, what governs how we behave with certain groups of people? And that is culture. And this is around the time where consumer culture theory as a practice started to take hold. And you started getting like champions in the space like Doug Holt, Grant McCracken, Eric Thompson. Now, one of the things that's most fascinating to me about this topic, about branding and culture, is that there's a symbiotic relationship there with branding and culture. Brands, of course, you know, will sink or swim based on, you know, how well they tap into the culture. And if they tap into something that maybe hasn't been tapped into in that way before, you know, that's a huge part of how brands can succeed. But then on the other hand, brands have the power to impact culture, especially brands that kind of bring something that maybe hasn't been there as much before. You yourself have certainly worked with brands that have themselves had a deep impact on culture. You've worked with Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) Very fortunate. Yes, very fortunate. I think it's safe to say that she has, I would say that her brand has impacted culture almost more than culture has impacted her brand. I Mm. think she brought her own thing to it. So I'd love to hear about that interplay. Let's hit it from the brands fitting into a cultural context first, because with branding, it's always a balance there, which on the one hand, you want to take cultural context into account. You want to make sure you know the picture you're fitting into. But again, you may want to make sure to fit into it in a way that hasn't happened before. So how can brands figure out that balance of making sure that they're taking cultural context into account without blending in. Yeah. So to your point, you can't talk about brand without talking about culture because brands are identifiable signifiers, right? They're identifiable signifiers that conjures up thoughts and feelings in the minds of people with regards to products, companies, institutions, organizations, and people, right? A signifier is something that has meaning. So brands are vessels of meaning that conjure up affects and cognitions within people, which are associated to products, companies, institutions, or organizations. Now that meaning, of course, is mediated by culture because culture is a meaning making system. That is, we make meaning based on our cultural subscription. For instance, for some, a cow is leather, For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all of them based on how you make meaning. For some, a rug is decor. For others, it's a souvenir. For some people, it's a place of worship. Which one is it? It's all of them based on our cultural subscription. The same thing goes with brands. What does the brand mean? What does it mean? This is a securitist question because brands are vessels of meaning. So we're asking ourselves is what does the brand stand for? We often say that way, but we really mean to say is what does the brand stand in for? That when I see the brand mark, when I experience it, when I hear it, when I smell it, when I engage with it, what are the thoughts and feelings that are conjured up in the minds of people? And that meaning is formed and constructed by people. Now the brand may signal things to the world, hoping that its intended meaning is what it actually means in the minds of people, but those two things aren't always congruent, which is why it's so important that brands understand culture. 
They understand the way by which people make meaning so that what they say, what they project in the world, be it marketing communication, be it their products, be it their pricing, be it the distribution, what Jerome McCarthy would call the place or the promotion, the four P's as we know it to be, that we leverage these things to signal to people what we intend to mean, what we want the brand to conjure, what we want the brand to evoke. But it's not always the way people see it. And to get it greater congruence of what we intend to say, what we intend to mean, what it actually means requires great proximity with people, great proximity with culture. And you mentioned Beyonce. Beyonce, her intended meaning has been consistent since we've seen her in 97, when she was telling us, no, Beyonce has been always about women's empowerment. Everything that Beyonce has done since then to, to who runs the world, girls, to can you pay my bills to now you ain't going to break my soul. Like all of these things have been demonstrative declarations of Beyonce's point of view, her belief, what she intends to mean. That when you see Beyonce, you go, yeah, she's Queen B. She's an artist, but she's much more than that. She transcends what she does. And she sits in a place that's more congruent with who she is, her conviction. Beyonce is able to do this well because she stays in close proximity to culture. In fact, to your point, she's in dialogue with culture. That as the things around her manifest and take place, she enters the cultural discourse through a lens of her point of view, which is extremely powerful. And the brands who do this well, these brands win often. And the ones who don't find themselves struggling to fit in. There's so many things I want to pick out of what you said. One of the things especially is understanding how things will be interpreted and how they're not necessarily what you're intending to put out there. The really obvious classic marketing tale of the Chevy Nova. <laughs> Nova meaning doesn't go in Spanish. That's a clear fail of understanding the message that will be received. That's but. Right. You also brought up the point of different things mean different things to different cultures. What is a cow? And that, I think, drills down the importance of understanding who you're trying to talk to. And that can be really difficult for brands because, you know, you have something you want to put out there. You want it to be universally understood. You would love for your target market to be everybody, but it's not. That's so right. how can you put those blinders on and make sure that if you're selling leather. You're not getting so bogged down in, oh, not thinking about India. You know, <laughs> how do you put those blinders on and focus on the recipients of your message that you actually care about getting it right instead of worrying so much about everyone who could possibly get it wrong? That's right. This is why segmentation is so important. We segment the market of this heterogeneous market where everyone is different. We find homogeneous like clusters where people are more the same. Now talk about this at great length in the book that we identify these clusters of people where they're more like than they are different and they're more the same they are with the greater population and hope that we can find congruence, we can find fit. Conventionally, marketers have been taught that we wanna look for product fit. So we segment the market, we target which segments that we believe are the most likely to move, the collective or the willing, if you were, and we position the brand or branded product in such a way that it speaks to that intersection between the product offering, the brand product and the people. And that positioning is typically based upon value propositions. My razor sharper, my battery lasts longer, my car goes faster, my shampoo would give you more body, whatever that means. But 
considering what we know about the sway of culture, that it posits a different approach. That what if we segment the market based on people who subscribe to the same cultural characteristics as the company? Realizing that culture is the most influential external force of human behavior, that the influence of culture will be far greater than just having a sharper razor. In fact, focusing on culture allows us to transcend the value propositions and operate at an identity congruent level. Increasing the likelihood that brands not only have connections with consumers, but increase the likelihood that those people will actually take action. Those people will actually move. So when it comes to segmentation, perhaps I would argue, the book argues, that we should start with what do we believe? What are the cultural characteristics of people like us? This brand. What does the brand believe? How does the brand see the world? How does it make meaning of the world? The conventions, the expectations of the brand. And then we go find people who see the world the way we do. And we preach the gospel about the way we see the world to those people. And those people go, man, finally someone said it. I've been feeling like that forever. Hey, John, come over here. Check this out. They're saying exactly the thing we've been saying for years. And the beautiful part about that is that people begin to consume not just because of what you do, but more so because of who they are. Because it's congruent with their identity. And as a result, they not only consume for the utility of the product, but they use the brand in a conspicuous form to signal who they are to the world as a mark of their identity. And they share it with people who are just like them. And they share it with people who are just like them and so on. So the idea for, for brands are don't talk to everyone, talk to your people. Talk to the people who see the world the way you do because that's the collective of the willing. Those are the people that are most inclined to move. And our job as marketers are to get people to adopt behavior, get people to move. And leveraging the sway of culture allows us to do that in a sustainable, in some ways predictable, systemic way, but not only gets those people to move, but activates the network effect that it empowers them to get other people to move on our behalf. And there is no marketing more powerful than the marketing of people. People trust people more than any form of marketing communication. We trust our people. Which sounds to me like also there's no marketing more powerful than a strong brand because that's what really ties into the identity part of it. That's what really takes it from value proposition of the product to the values of the brand, of right. the person, of the collective of the willing and tapping into their identity and becoming a part of their identity. It almost sounds like culture is a brand unto itself in a way. Yeah, culture is meaning, right? And brands are vessels of meaning. I often ask my students this, what's the biggest brand in the world? The strongest, most powerful brand in the world. And they'll go Disney or Apple or Nike. And I go, think bigger than that. And they go, oh man, the United States. They go, oh, now you're onto something. Keep going. And they go, oh man, Christianity. I'm like, now you're talking. Right, like Jesus this Christ, personal branding icon. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Seriously, <laughs> think of what religion is. Religion the etymology of religion is about commitment. It's about binding to something. So when we talk about, I do something religiously, we mean I'm committed to it. I do it consistently. I'm bound to it. And it's no surprise that the early scholars of sociology, Durkheim, Weber, Marx, these guys study culture by observing religion, right? So when we think about meaning Christianity as a brand has beliefs that help people within it see the world. There are artifacts that you don if you self-identify as such. There are behaviors that are normative and a language that you use that are expected of you. These are the conventions that people do to stay good standing citizens within this community. So to your point that in a lot of ways, culture is a brand, I would say in a lot of ways, yeah. Because culture is a system by which we make meaning and brands are vessels of meaning. So culture acts as like this vehicle by which the cultural characteristics or the conventions and expectations of people like us based on what we mean are transported. And we use stories, marketing communications, branded products as a way of communicating to the world who we are and how we see the world. Similarly, brands, of course, have to understand culture, but brands can also change culture. Brands can form culture, which is really yeah. fascinating. Again, very obvious example that we just used, Jesus, whole culture formed around that personal brand. But there's more to it than that. There's the Beehive. We're seeing the K-pop stands now. Music being, of course, a huge cultural force, but brands can greatly impact that cultural force. It's not always just the culture impacting the brand. So I'd love to hear from you about brands that kind of cross that line that really get from being a product-based thing that they're trying to sell to members of a culture to becoming something much, much bigger that actually impacts the culture, that changes the culture who they're trying to reach. So what are some key factors you feel that enable a brand to transcend like that and to almost become a culture unto itself? Amen. The, these brands that are engaged with culture, they contribute to the cultural characteristics of a given group of people. And by doing so, they are making culture. They are creating the exogenous shocks to the system, these things that happen outside of us to which we collectively decide what it means and if it's acceptable for people like us. You know, take a brand like, like Patagonia, which I write about in the book quite a bit, that Patagonia believes in climbing clean. Like they believe in mitigating our impact on the earth, right? This will happen to make coats and fleece and climbing gear, but why they do it, their conviction, how they see the world is based on climbing clean. And Patagonia, when it, 
enters the cultural discourse, it's always through that conviction of mitigating our impact on the planet. And so when Patagonia communicates these things, people who see the world the way Patagonia does go, that's my kind of brand. And they wear these brands to signal who they are. And then they share the brand's marketing communications as a way of projecting to the world their identity. These are identity projects. So when Patagonia sued the government because it was going to intrigue on reserved land or protected land, like people were sharing that article, like, look what Patagonia is doing. That's right. They should be doing this as a way of signaling how these people, how they individually see the world. When Patagonia decided to sell the company, essentially give the company away to nonprofits, people shared that stuff far and wide as a brand act that communicated who they were, how they see the world. They go, this is the kind of company that more companies should be like. It's because of what the brand does that signals congruence with who these people are. And when brands do this, they're not creating ads. They're creating cultural product. The things that we use to express who we are to the world and reflect who we are in the world. And the best creators do this well. You think about the literature we read, the music we listen to, the shows we watch, the television we take in, the movies we've seen, the podcasts we listen to, the art that we observe, the dances that we do, and the brands and branded products that we consume are ways by which we express to the world who we are and reflect what people like us ought to do. For instance, I grew up listening to hip hop, watching Spike Lee movies, and watching The Cosby Show before I knew that Bill Cosby was a dirtbag. Now, for me, I see the world, I see the world of what's cool through the aesthetic of hip hop because of my consumption of hip hop. My ideas about race relations are very much informed by Spike Lee movies that I grew up on. My notion of what it means to be a good parent beside my parents are what I saw in Heathcliff and Claire Huxable, right? The cultural product helps me get a sense of what the world should be and also how I should be showing up in the world. And when brands do this well, people incorporate and adopt brand language into their normal lexicon, to their cultural practices, right? Like in the 90s, we said, what's up because of <laughs> Budweiser. Or later still, people say Dilly as a means to celebrate. That came from an ad from Bud Light, right? These marketing communications, they're not just ways to communicate the brand and its products. It's ways to signal the brand, what it intends to mean, such that its meaning and the meaning that people construct are congruent and people now integrate the brand into their cultural practices. And that way, the brand is no longer just an advertiser getting people's attention, but they're also cultural producers that people use to express who they are in the world and also reflect what people like them ought to do. This has been a breathtaking discussion. I have enjoyed geeking out with you on all of this so much. We've gone so many places in this incredible discussion, but I'd like to get a little more small, a little more surface level. Some brands enter a culture and everybody's doing it sort of way. Everybody's wearing this particular logo on their clothing because everybody's wearing this particular logo on their clothing. There's some degree of kind of conformity in there sometimes when it comes to certain products. When so many of the people who are consuming their product and repping their brand are doing it because everybody else is doing it, 
how can a brand understand the values that drove the people who drove that? Does that make any sense? So how can a brand figure out why did this hit? When if you ask most people on the street who are consuming the product, they'll say, because everybody else is doing it. How can you find out what's actually under that and what actually helped it to catch fire? Yeah. So what you're getting at is quintessential social contagion. How do things spread and take hold into our cultural practices, cultural contagion even. And what the literature tells us is that cultural contagion, social contagion starts by imitation. You know, we observe other people like us and we go, oh, is that what people like us ought to do? We see that as a, an anti-social strategy that I stay social by following the trends of what people like us ought to do. But where do those things start? They start with people who, by their very nature, they operate outside of the norms as a distinction strategy. So they don't want to be normal. Actually, they don't want to be social. They want distinction. So they're willing to look like a fool for a few moments before everybody else. And those people adopt a behavior. And what happens is that as people who are close to them, they oversee that and go, that's cool. I'm going to try that as a way of, I, I, there's people doing it before me. So I don't, I don't like an idiot first, but I can still look cool to the majority. And then it starts to, to propagate through. Everett Rogers refers to this as the diffusion curve. You start with innovators, early adopters, early majorities, late majorities into laggards. That's a bell curve. But what it tells us then is that the majority of people are in the middle. They are quote unquote normal. And in that bell curve, there are social pressures telling us to be normal. Dress this way, wear your hair that way, talk this way, use that kind of product, go to that kind of school, marry this kind of people, vacation these kind of places, right? These are social pressures telling us to be normal. And that normality is culture, right? Normality is what people like us do, culture. But when we think about that as marketers, we go, oh, let's get in the middle where most people are. 80% of that diffusion curve sits right there in the middle statistically. So let's talk to those people because most people are there. But those people, to your point, are just looking at what everybody else is doing to figure out what they should do so that they can be normal. So then who is the one who we're sparking or catalyzing change? It's the people on the far side of that diffusion curve, what we would call subculture. And the subcultural folks are pushing against the conventions of normality, and they are innovating and creating new identity projects that then become diffused in the population. Not all of them, but some of them, which goes to say that everything that's cool right now today was once subcultural. So 20 years ago, if you were into comic books, you were a dork, a nerd. Now... The movies that we watch across the globe, the most movies, the movies that are most viewed across the globe all come from comic books or majority of them come from comic books. 20 years ago, if you were into anime, you were a loser, right? Now, anime is cool. 20 years ago, if you were into gaming, you were a failure to launch living in your mama's basement. Now it's cool. Well, what is now mass culture was once subcultural. So for brands, this goes back to our point about segmentation, we should identify the subcultures that are most aligned to who we are and how we see the world. And we target those subcultures and we activate those subcultures by facilitating their connections from having close proximity such that we're serving them 
And by the nature of how things diffuse, how ideas spread, people will follow when those things seem to be aligned. But if we start to chase the masses, we find ourselves copying, following culture as opposed to leading it, contributing to it. So we start with the subculture who sees the world the way we do. How do we contribute to and facilitate their connections such that what was once subcultural begins to propagate into the masses? And as we follow them, because they're certainly going to shift as everyone else does it because they want distinction, we're always going to be on the cutting edge of things because we're with the people who are doing the cutting. I will never forget in my early 20s at my first job, seeing a presentation from a market research firm about teenagers and about the teenage market. Now we know those people as elder millennials. But so these were people who were maybe five years younger than me, five to 10 years younger than I was because I was in my early 20s here. And it was really mind blowing to see that curve, like you said. And to realize that the things that my friends had been made fun of and called freaks for were now things that like the cheerleaders and the football players of the of that generation were doing. And I'm like, this is mind blowing. So I love what I love your point about identify the subcultures who align with what you're doing. Oh, this I could have this discussion all day, but <laughs> in the meantime, so people can continue learning so much from your brilliance, please tell people where they can find you, why they should find you, and what they will find there. Awesome. You can find me on all the social channels at Mark to the C. That's M-A-R-C-T-O-T-H-E-C. Why you should come find me? Because I spend my time a lot of ways, my, my, my life studying people and understanding why people do what they do. And what I realized in my years of work and my years of research, scholarly research and the centuries of data before me is that culture influences more than we know. And if we understand culture sway on us, not only do we have agency to leverage and harness its power as a marketer, we also have agency to be intentional about our decisions as a consumer, as a citizen of the world. What you will find from me on my social channels are my research, my commentary on the world, highlights of things that I think are important for marketers to consider, and hopefully provocations that force us to think differently, to see the world differently, because the way we see the world ultimately informs the way we behave in the world. And if we change the way we see the world, then the world will change also. So the hope is to provide those kind of provocations, those sort of dent in the universe that helps us be the best versions of ourselves. Oh, I believe the children are our future. All right. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing discussion. And I'm definitely going to go get the book for the culture because just seeing how excited I am from this half hour discussion, I need a whole book of it. So thank you so much for being here. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, whether you are listening to Let's Talk About Brands on the Adweek Podcast Network or you're watching us here on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to Let's Talk About Brands on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss a single Monday episode and that you subscribe to Christine Gritman Inc. on YouTube so that you check out these video episodes on Fridays. And in between every Tuesday, I'm over on Twitter hosting Chat About Brands where you can weigh in on the week's topic. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About Brand, part of the Adweek Podcast Network and Acast Creator Network. This podcast was produced by Christine Gritman, executive produced by Al Manorino and John Heil, and edited by Christine Gritman. 
You can listen and subscribe to all of Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. Stay updated on all things Adweek Podcast Network by following us on Twitter at Adweek Podcast. And if you have a question or suggestion for the show, send us an email at podcast at adweek.com.